This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Next, we delve into a pair of polls on our healthcare system. First, and of special interest to our demographic, an Angus Reid survey finds more than 2 million Canadians over 55 face significant barriers when accessing the healthcare system in their province, such as long waits to see a family doctor if they have one, or lengthy wait times for surgery, diagnostic tests, and specialist visits. Another poll conducted for the Canadian Medical Association finds nearly 70% believe technology has improved their health care, and they believe that more of it can reduce wait times and improve access through virtual visits. So, uh, I want to hear from you about your experiences, the things that frustrate you in terms of waiting. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we begin with Shachi Curl, who is the Executive Director of the Angus Reed Institute. Hello there. Hello. Why did you decide to focus on people over 55? Well, when we look at healthcare in this country... It tends to be through the lens of the general population. But let's face it, uh, if you are fortunate enough in your life to be between the ages of 18 and 35, your needs from the healthcare system when it comes to primary care uh, are pretty light and not generally, not generally as complex as they are as the body starts to age. And so that can often have the effect of um, you know, smoothing out or, or hiding some of the underlying problems or really um, uh, numbing people to the scope of, of what is going on for the people who are actually starting to need and rely on the primary care system the most. So you got to look at the biggest customers of healthcare in this country, if you want to put it like that, and those are people over the age of 55. And, but you found that people over 75 uh, kind of had less difficulty accessing the system. So there's a lot of room and a lot of space uh, across the spectrum in terms of age groups. If you are a younger, older person in this country, if you are sort of 55 to 65, you're probably waiting a little bit longer for tests than you are if you are 75, 85 years old. The oldest Canadians are definitely having fewer uh, wait time issues for care. That said, the older you are, and particularly as you get into those more aged and elderly categories, uh, you're also dealing with more complex health care issues. You may have heart issues and diabetes issues, and perhaps there is cancer or a different diagnosis. The older you are, the more likely it is to be more complex, and people with complex care needs do find themselves struggling more to access the doctors, the specialists, the diagnostic tests that they need relative to people who are just dealing with one issue at a time. Okay. And uh, is, it, is it a bigger problem accessing primary health care of your family doctor who's kind of in charge of your health or the specialist and the diagnostic tests and surgery? 
You know, for about one in four Canadians, even just getting in to see a GP if they have one is a bit of a struggle. It's a bit of a wait. Uh, so that's significant when you've got a quarter of that cohort saying, I can't even see my frontline family doctor or, or GP when I need one, because often those are the first people who are going to look at you, assess you, write the requisitions for the tests that you need, take it from there. Um, at the same time, what we do find is that there are pretty significant differences in access to primary care among this age cohort depending on where you live in the country. So on average, you talked about the 2 million. That works out to about one in five Canadians over the age of 55, but it's not evenly distributed. If you live in Ontario or in BC, you're most likely to have the least issues with primary care access. If you live in Atlantic Canada, that number actually rises to more than one in three. So Atlantic Canadians in part because the demographic and the population there is simply older than it is in other parts of the country. More older people report having access issues. You know, we've heard about the nursing shortages in New Brunswick. We've heard about the challenges within the care system there. Okay, Shachi Curl, Executive Director with the Angus Reed Institute. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Okay, I am going to bring in two other people right now. We have Sean Watley, who is a Monk Senior Fellow in Healthcare. He's the former president of the Ontario Medical Association. And another issue that we're facing is access to life-saving drugs. And for that aspect, I'm going to bring in Dr. Gerald Battist, who is director of the Siegel Cancer Center at Montreal's Jewish General Hospital. Hi there to both of you. Hi, Hello, Libby. Okay, let's start with Dr. Battist in Montreal. So there are three cancer drugs that are now on shortage. What are they and how serious is it? Well, there are more than three, but the, the most recent three that we've been uh, dealing with are uh, drugs called uh, 5-fluorouracil, <clears throat> etoposide, and navalbine. These are drugs that are commonly used in the treatment of uh, a variety of different cancers. Um, we we can't we can't say that there's uh, a shortage uh, uh, in the sense that people won't have access to these drugs. And my point in bringing this up to the media has not been to has been to not create anxiety or panic. Uh, but there is a problem with the production. And over the course of the past five years or more, there have been uh, back orders on important drugs like this. In the meantime. People across the country, and this is a North American-wide thing, are, are are scrambling. The pharmacists spend a lot of time every day trying to find a source for the drugs, make sure that they have the drugs in advance of treatment, uh, sharing between hospitals and uh, drug-buying groups, and where possible, finding drugs that are of absolutely equivalent uh, efficacy and toxicity so that the patients are always getting the best care. So no one's losing out on anything, but we're concerned because this is a this is an ongoing problem that should not be happening. Right. And there are, of course, other drug shortages not in the cancer system. What exactly. would you like the government to do? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, as we investigate this, and a lot of people have kind of uh, joined me in this and have been working on it on their own uh, for some time, it, be it becomes evident that it's, it's very complex very uh, multifactorial. These are largely drugs that are off-patent and uh, produced often by, uh, not by the large pharma, though some of them are involved. And so these are n low-profit drugs. 
and therefore very low priority, it seems. And so if a factory that's designated to make Venerelbine, for example, doesn't pass an FDA or Health Canada inspection and it has to close down by the rules, um, you know, then there's a drug shortage suddenly. Uh, you would imagine, and I expect, that for uh, drugs that are high profile and high cost and high profit, this never happens um, because they see to it that it's done and they, they take preventive action. Um, and so there's a little bit of that. Uh, uh, sometimes, uh, so we're seeing a lack of social responsibility on the part of drug makers. On the other hand, we also make contracts in our country. We negotiate with drug makers, and the contracts uh, apparently do not uh, include clauses that penalize people, uh, uh, companies that uh, fail to provide uh, drugs. And uh, ultimately, it's really the government, Health Canada, has responsibility to overlook this. So these they don't make the contracts. We have this complicated system where each province is doing that. But they they have a overall say over the drugs that uh, that are accessible to Canadians. Sometimes their rules are overly strict, and uh, other sources of drug that is, is perfectly fine doesn't pass muster with their rules. And I have a feeling that we need a specific a specific group of people uh, made it in a sort of public way that we can. Uh, 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 look to as people that are accountable for making sure that there's flexibility when there needs to be without compromising quality for our patients, but at the same time uh, can anticipate and, and advise us of upcoming shortages and press for resolution of problems as they come up. Okay, well, unfortunately, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about this. Dr. Gerald Battis, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Libby. Okay, well. bye-bye. I'm going to bring in Dr. Sean Watley. Hi, Sean. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Doing great. Okay. So uh, the the Canadian Medical Association had a study saying that people are willing to accept technology in, in healthcare, and they think it's a good thing. So here is my first question. Isn't part of the problem the way that doctors are compensated now uh, so that if they do something by email, for instance, they're not getting paid for it. Well, that's a great question, and certainly it does apply in some situations. But a lot of times it's just having to do with the cost. For example, there's a gigantic fee that I have to pay to set up um, a secure confidential email service attached to my electronic medical record so that I can interact with patients. What I usually end up doing is just giving them my cell phone and they can just call me or text me. And so we, we end up doing things in a non-secure environment because it costs too much for me to set up the email side. Now, phones have been around forever and patients like using the phone when necessary. And to be clear, this isn't all the time, but when you need a, you know, there's a critical lab result, you want to call your patient, you call them, they call you back. And so there are ways to interact, for sure. I mean, I, I just to give an, a personal example of, of this, right? So I have a, I will say, a special relationship with some of my doctors that they will communicate with me by email for yeah. certain things where other people have to go in. So 
little while ago, I thought I just uh, did a little sprain on my finger. Uh, most people, uh, it didn't heal. Uh, I thought I had a fracture. Somebody else suggested I may have a fracture. Most people would have to go in, see their doctor, show them the finger. They'd say, oh, I think that's fractured. Uh, you need to go for an x-ray. Then there's a separate you know, visit for an x-ray, and then they come back and get the result. Uh, you know, I, I emailed my doctor. I said, think I have a fracture. Can you send me a, a, a requisition for an x-ray, which he did, got the x-ray, and I did go see the doctor after the x-ray. And frankly, they could have looked at the x-ray and said, yeah, it's fractured, but there's nothing we can do. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I'm glad you shared that story, Libby, and, and I'm so glad that you didn't say your doctor's name. Yeah. <laughs> because, because, as you know, um, we could get in a ton of trouble right now. The regulatory colleges would say, you know, number one, you have to do a history and a physical. So unless you actually examine the person's finger, for example, what if your finger wasn't just broken but also had an infection? Or what if there was too much pressure in there and your digit was running out of uh, out of blood supply and so you were at risk of losing the tip of your finger? And you think of all these different scenarios where it wouldn't work out as well as it did for you. Now, having said that, I mean, when you include uh, video chats and live chats and close-up pictures and they're... Technology is getting better and better. I think where we're going to see technology play a role is in actually bypassing that whole interaction that you just said. You know, instead of going, parking, paying for parking, waiting to see, waiting in the waiting room, waiting to see your nurse, waiting to see the doc, waiting for getting a piece of paper, you know, all this waiting, waiting, waiting to get little bits of information at a time. Um, we already have point of care testing. So, for example, to check your blood sugar. People check their blood sugar at home all the time. People are checking how thin their blood is if they're on Coumadin. So they check their INRs. We're using them in the emergency department at the bedside to really, really fast. You know, 10 minutes will know whether or not you're having a heart attack uh, on, on blood work, um, you know, including your cardiogram, et cetera. But I think what you're going to see a, is... And I have something that can take my cardiogram on my phone. Yeah, exactly. So I think you're going to see a massive increase in wearables. And, and basically what's going to happen, I, I, I suspect, and other people are predicting this as well, like Eric Topol um, in his book, The Doctor Will See You Now, or The Patient Will See You Now, rather. Um, people are going to bypass all the regulatory hurdles that we have to currently put up with just to get people the care that they need. And to your point, I mean, in many cases, I mean, that you are a great example of having privileged access that a lot of other people in your same situation just wouldn't have. They'd have to go through the hurdles of going and sitting and waiting and going to another x-ray place, et cetera. Um, patients aren't going to put up with that forever. And, and I don't think they should. I think we should get them what they need as fast as possible, eliminate all that weight. And if we can't do that as a system, then patients are going to start getting it themselves by bypassing the whole thing and going directly to the x-ray or directly to the lab work because the machines that offer these answers are coming down in price like crazy. Okay, uh, we're going to have to take a break in a sec, but but again, wouldn't it be helpful to change the way doctors are paid so that if they do that, they get paid? Oh, absolutely. We're already seeing that, right? With capitation. Some people are on salary. Capitation means that you get a certain dollar figure to care for a patient for the whole year. 
Um, but I think a lot of this is being driven by patient interest and demand, right? Some, some patients really, really like the idea of virtual care. It works well for them. It's hard for them to get out of their apartment. Other patients are really leery of it, right? They're, they're, there's definitely something special about being in the office with your doc and, and they can lay hands on your finger, check it out. Or, you know, it's hard to reproduce listening to your heart over a video conference. Um, having said that, there's a huge explosion in virtual care for sure. In terms of technology, is a barrier a uh, doctor's investment because most of them are small business people? And, and why are so many still operating with fax machines? Oh, great question. The evil fax. The evil <laughs> you know, fax. Like, the evil fax, yeah. We just uh, spent a huge amount of money on an upgrade uh, for to electronically fax our prescriptions. And it turns out that many of the pharmacies are still on an analog system. And so they couldn't receive our electronic faxes, which are not really faxes, right? They're purely electronic. So it's not just doctors. It's more of a system issue. Yeah, but you're talking about, you know, any anybody has a scanner on their home computer. Is that not secure enough? Uh, I mean, I don't know that faxes are any more secure. Well, great question. And and that you're probably uh, stretching me beyond my um, uh, technical expertise to say that your personal scanner is more or less um, secure than different types of technology. Um, the issue right now is that there we don't have an integration between the electronic record that sits on your doc's office desk and, and a lot of the information that comes in. Now, the good news is that a ton of that information is already connected. So, for example, we have hospital report manager, all the discharge summaries and lab reports and x-rays just immediately come into my electronic record. So the fax is used less and less and less. But to your point, it's embarrassing that we're using technology that I think was invented in like 1920, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I think it was a little after that. Okay. <laughs> um, and is... is is the barrier, I mean, how, has anybody quantified how much money it's going to take to sort this out? And, you know, we had a whole e-health scandal about the money that was wasted trying to do it. Yeah. Oh, there's never a shortage of money. When you start, at, when you start talking at the hospital level, um, I've heard anywhere from 4 to 5% just to maintain your IT system. Other places in the state spend as much as 8% of their operating budget. Uh, when you look at an upgrade, uh, huge, huge dollars. And so uh, you're not just looking at um, uh, going from an IT approach for the whole healthcare system, but also these little pockets, hospitals, doctor's offices, labs. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we have to start by asking what value does IT add for the patient? How does it get care faster for the patient? How does it improve quality for the patient? How does it improve the patient experience? I mean, a lot of patients complain that my doc spends all her time looking at the screen or all his time looking at the screen. So, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's an exciting field for sure, but it's not just as simple as saying, we'll computerize everything and it'll be Elysian. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in terms of uh, next steps, I mean, you see this poll, you see the other polls talking about difficulty of access. I mean, you, you know about it, right? Mm-hmm. So what should be done next? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm really glad that you looked at the Angus Reid poll. Um, it, it's not just access to a person who has a, a pulse and a blood pressure and that you can talk to, right? You don't just need to see me. You need to get your x-ray of your finger. You need to get your stat blood work, you know, your immediate blood work. You need to get an ultrasound or a CAT scan. And so the difficulty with improving access to one link in a healthcare chain without improving the other links is it still doesn't do anything for patients. So now you, let's say I, I have, uh, I triple the number of evening hours. And so you can come see me till midnight. But if I can't offer you the test that you need, how have I really helped you? I've basically said, Libby, yes, I'm really worried about you. You need an ultrasound, you need blood work, you need whatever, and you have to go to the hospital. And, and, and that doesn't really help you. You might as well just have gone to the eMERGE in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but you know, for most of it, not so much CAT scans, but for most of it, I can get blood work at a lab near my doctor's office and an x-ray and all of that. Oh, totally. Totally. And I think uh, we're already seeing a lot of um, uh, improvement in that integration. Like you were just saying, you, you, you called or you emailed your doc. Um, um, certainly there are things that we can do more of that on. For example, let's say we, we know you, we have to co- check your cholesterol in a year and it's been a year and someone just calls or, or, or texts or emails us and says, hey, I, can, you, can you give me a lab rec? Uh, without actually having to come into the office, get the piece of paper, and then go get their lab. So, but those are baby steps. I mean, if we really wanted a full-blown uh, IT-based, virtual, high-tech environment, uh, it, it, I don't think we'd recognize what we're doing right now. Okay, well, that's not very encouraging. Uh, in 30 <laughs> seconds, what would you like to leave us with, Dr. Watley? Well, I... I, I, I um, we need to take, let go of the reins. I mean, the way IT works is by innovating at the margins. So unless you allow people the freedom to start finding creative solutions to their problems, just like you did, right? You, you emailed your doc with the problem. Uh, right now, we are so um, um, uh, tightened that we're wrapped down tightly by all these regulations. No, I have to physically see you. I have to lay my hands on your finger before I can send you for an x-ray. Uh, unless we loosen that up a bit uh, and not be afraid that services might increase, right? The easier it is for you to get tests might lead to an increase in the number of tests. I think that's a fair trade-off if it improves access for you. So it's, it's, uh, it's a sticky discussion for sure. Okay. Dr. Sean Watley, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Really appreciate it. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.